Hey, friends, uh, this is Robert Powell, your host, uh, prefacing my preface here for you online listeners. What you guys are about to hear is a um, longer version of a recent interview with the filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, longer than the one that I aired on my radio show because I have more time in this uh, online version to uh, give you some really good extra stuff. And uh, for those of you already familiar with Joshua and his movies, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, you can uh, skip ahead a couple minutes and um, and jump over the uh, kind of long-winded intro that I did uh, on the radio show. It was for people who may not know these films, and I just felt uh, obliged to give some background. But if you don't need it, I'd suggest you fast forward. And either way, uh, I do think the interview is well worth a listen, even if you've heard other interviews with Joshua. I think this one might have some material that you've not heard him discuss. Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And uh, today uh, I'm going to welcome back to the show the filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer. I had him on a couple of years ago when he had uh, just released a documentary film called The Act of Killing. I'm going to hope that you have seen it or at least heard about it. It got uh, tremendous uh, attention from the press and from critics and was uh, nominated for an Academy Award. It was a, a truly remarkable film. Uh, its co-executive producers, uh, Werner Herzog and Errol Morris, who themselves have seen a lot of movies, said it was like nothing they had ever witnessed before. I think a lot of us felt likewise. Uh, it was a look at some of the perpetrators of the 1965 Indonesian genocide. That is when General Suharto, who was soon to become the military dictator of Indonesia for about 30 years, was consolidating his power and uh, wiping out his political opponents. And I mean literally wiping them out. Uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe more than a million people were massacred. Uh, people who were members of the Communist Party, people who were accused of being communists, people who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. There were land reformers, union organizers, intellectuals. All kinds of people slaughtered. Well, uh, over a period of years uh, while filming in Indonesia, Joshua actually started meeting some of the now old former death squad members and some of the officials who had ordered the massacres, who had a hand in them, and uh, interviewing them and finding uh, that they were quite happy to talk and even act out the killings that they had perpetrated. Uh, they were not ashamed at all, not bashful. They were proud. And uh, Joshua's point is that's what happens when the killers are still in power, when they're part of a, a regime that approved of what they did and uh, treated them as heroes. And uh, one of the things that makes the film so remarkable is not just that openness about what we consider atrocities, but also these phantasmagorical scenes that these uh, mass murderers act out. They sort of cast their activities in uh, imaginary ways for the camera. They compose scenes based on American movies, for instance, gangster movies, musicals, westerns. Anyway, it was uh, an incredible film, as I say. And uh, Joshua felt that at the end of it, his work wasn't done, that there was a second film to be made, this time from the victim's perspective. It is called The Look of Silence. It has just come out. And uh, in this case, instead of talking to these killers himself, Joshua films the brother of a victim, a man named Adi Rukun, confronting the same people who killed so many Indonesians, including his brother. Uh, Joshua is a really insightful guy. I think you'll enjoy this conversation, whether you've seen the movies or plan to or not. 
How do you like to quickly describe the difference between these two films, The Act of Killing and now the new one, The Look of Silence? I think that the two movies are about fundamentally different things. They both are dealing with uh, impunity today. You see, I think neither movie is about what happened in 1965 as such. Neither is about the past as such. Both are about the terrible legacy of unresolved trauma in the present. I see The Act of Killing in its director's cut as a film about the lies, fantasy stories the perpetrators tell themselves so they can live with themselves and the terrible consequences of that when imposed upon the whole society. It's a kind of nonfiction fever dream cut through by these moments of absolute silence that make you feel the haunted space in which the perpetrator's fantasies, lies, stories are unfolding. And I see the look of silence as a kind of poem about what it's like to have to live as a survivor surrounded by the still powerful perpetrators in that haunted silence. What does it do to human beings to have to live afraid for 50 years? It is indeed poetic, and I want to talk about that aspect of it uh, in a little while. Um, one you know, big difference, of course, between the two films is that if there's a central character in The Act of Killing, it's Anwar Congo, a former Death Squad member. And in this case, it is Adi Rukun, who is the brother of a victim uh, from a family of survivors. And he becomes, uh, in a way, this is probably the wrong word, but he becomes, in a way, your stand-in in this film, uh, doing a lot of the interviewing. I think that the wrong word there is interview. I think what he's doing is confronting the perpetrators in the hope that they can take moral responsibility for what they've done so that he can forgive them. and therefore so that his children will be able to uh, be reconciled with their neighbors and no longer have to live in fear the way he and his parents have. In that sense, uh, we're seeing something much more unusual in a nonfiction film than interviews. We're seeing something totally unprecedented, in fact, confrontations between survivors and perpetrators who still are in power. It is called The Look of Silence, the film, and there is a lot of silence in the film, or if one listens closely, it's not exactly silence, it's often crickets. Yeah, that's right. The sound in the film is actually the result of months of work. Normally, maybe in a nonfiction film and a documentary, you have a week of sound mixing. This film has six weeks of sound mixing, something much closer to a, a fiction film. We took all of the ambient sounds out, all of the background noise, all of the passing cars, yes. the things that would take you out of the very intimate space between Adi and the perpetrators he's confronting, between Adi and his parents. And then we put in only those sounds we wanted. And over much of the film, particularly over the kind of haunted landscape shots, I put 16 layers of crickets. Which we play like, uh, like the different tracks are played almost like instruments in a symphony, depending on how intimate we are. Whether we were, and they somehow embody a chorus of ghosts, I feel. There's, there's, you see this, the, the dead in North Sumatra, tens of thousands of them in just this region were killed at rivers, and their families never told that their loved ones were murdered, which means that the parents and the children of those who were murdered would refer to their missing relatives as Balum Pulam, or in, in Indonesian, or they haven't returned. Mm. Or making it impossible for them to mourn, to work through their grief, because they couldn't even say that their loved ones had died. Mm. In that sense, the dead are un not only unburied, but unmourned, and there's this sense of a kind of 
of the ghosts all around. And so, the, and the crickets somehow embody that. There's a sense of in this silence, that this silence is constituted by a maelstrom of invisible spirits and forces. I, I had a feeling making this film that, uh, even though it's a nonfiction film, that maybe it's a, also a work of magical realism, that somehow magical realism is the correct idiom for addressing trauma and the unburied dead in a context of complete impunity. You know, I was going to say, never have crickets, normally kind of a gentle sound, sounded so haunting uh, as in this film. Um, a lot of the, the quiet in this film takes place when we're simply looking at Adi's face, Adi interviewing murderers, uh, including one who actually killed his elder brother, Adi uh, had an elder brother who was killed in 1965. Adi was born two years later, almost as an answer to his mother's prayers. At least that's how she sees it. When did it first occur to you that Adi would be the face and the detective or the the, the person who confronts and who forces, uh, in some cases, these killers to look at what they've done by the way he not only turns out to be a magnificent, and I want to use the word interviewer again, even if it's not the right word, but he's also an optometrist. So while doing these interviews, he's um, using this device called a phoropter that optometrists use to try out various lenses, and he's correcting people's eyesight. Um, and of course, the, the metaphor is uh, you know too prominent to miss. At what point did all that come together for you? It really came together for me in early 2012, we just finished editing the uncut version of The Act of Killing and uh, returned to Indonesia to shoot The Look of Silence, knowing that we wouldn't be able to go back to make the second film after The Act of Killing had its first screenings, that it would become too dangerous for me. And uh, I sat down with Adi to ask him. I didn't know he would be the main character yet. I only knew he would continue to be an important collaborator, advisor, and friend, as he had been that point for nine years since I started this work back in 2003 and we sat down together and I said what do you think we should do for the new film and Adi said I spent seven years watching your footage with the perpetrators you see it was Adi who first pushed me to film the perpetrators and then when he saw their strange boasting about their crimes uh, encouraged me to continue filming the perpetrators arguing that anyone who would would hear the way they see the way they speak about what they'd done would be forced to acknowledge how the terrible present-day situation that Indonesia is still suffering. Adi then said, okay, I've spent seven years watching your footage of the perpetrators. It's changed me. I need to confront them. I need to confront the man who killed my brother. I said immediately and reflexively, absolutely not. There has never been a film where survivors confront perpetrators who are still in power. It's too dangerous. No. And Adi actually took out a small video camera that I'd given to him a couple years earlier when I'd finished shooting The Act of Killing, and he took out a tape, and and he played me the one scene in The Look of Silence that Adi shot, where Adi's father's crawling through his own home in a state of advanced dementia, lost, calling for help. And Adi said to me, this was the first day that my father couldn't remember anyone in the family, and he was confused in this way all day, and we were trying to help him for hours, but every time we would touch him, go close to him, he would become afraid because we'd become strangers to him. And not knowing, I couldn't, Adi explained that he couldn't bear just allowing his father to be 
calling for help and do nothing. So eventually he picked up the small camera and started to film because he wanted to somebody he felt that it was an important moment. The moment he started filming, he said he realized why this moment was important. He said, this is the moment that it became too late for my father to heal. Uh, He's forgotten the son whose murder has destroyed his life and the family's life, but he hasn't forgotten his fear, and now he'll never be escaped from the fear because he can't remember what happened. And then he turned to me and he said, you see, I don't want my children to inherit this prison of fear from my father. And he said, I think if I can confront the perpetrators and I show them that I'm there only to forgive them, if they can just accept what they've done is wrong, they will welcome this as an opportunity to accept what they've done and find forgiveness from one of their victim's families. Uh, he, he said that my children need not grow up afraid of their neighbors the way I have. So, so Josh, um, you set up these encounters between Adi and former members of the death squad, including uh, one of the very men who killed uh, his brother, Romley, they usually begin, not all of them, but some of them, begin as eye tests with this foropter device. And then in the midst of asking them if this lens works or they can see a little bit clearer, Adi inserts these questions about where they were in 1965 and what they did. And it doesn't take long for them to start telling horrifying tales of what they did, similar to the ones we saw in The Act of Killing. Um was that a strategy that you guys worked out together? Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was something I came up with, and I had two basic reasons for it. First of all, and most importantly, it uh, was a practical consideration about safety. I realized that if there was going to be any chance for Adi to have the dialogue for which he was hoping, the, the dialogue should be as non-confrontational as possible for as long as possible. And... If Adi was to go have a basis for confronting them, even a basis for knowing what they had done, it would be much better if they re- volunteer the relevant information directly to Adi rather than Adi having to go and say, I know who you are from Joshua's footage, which of course would make anybody feel trapped. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I figured when you're having your eyes, I, I don't wear glasses, but I, uh, and now I'm sad to say my uh, balding has meant that I, I'm, I shave my own head. But I remember from my days in the bar, going to see barbers that uh, you're, you're willing to chat if you're asked questions yes. by, the, by the barber. And I figured that, you know, when you're being examined by a doctor, your guard is down, you're, you're disarmed, you're not likely to get physically violent. And if Adi asks questions but doesn't respond immediately to what they're saying and the answers, they'll continue talking honestly and volunteer for Adi in a context that Adi can prolong as long as necessary, all of the crucial details that they told me years earlier, and that this would be the basis for the confrontations that could follow. And then I also recognized that this would be a metaphor for blindness. Yeah. And, you know, and of course for the goal of this film to bring events back into focus. And you said something about Adi's face, which is very important. Adi, in coming to... and coming with a willingness, a desire even to be able to, to be able to forgive, he's looking at them with a humanizing gaze, a gentle, empathetic desire to understand. And that doesn't make it easier for the perpetrators. On the contrary, that gaze becomes ultimately the mirror in which they're forced to confront their conscience and confront their own lies. They 
because when Adi looks at them as a human being, they, of course, look back at him as a human being. And in that moment, all the more so because he's there as a doctor testing their eyes. And all, and so they, therefore, realize that if Adi's human, Romley was human, that all of their victims were human. And all of these lies that they've been telling themselves so that they can live with themselves and that underpin their boasting uh, come shattering down and... Uh, come, and and you see them react in panic. You see them get angry. You see them threaten, and you see them scramble for new lies. Um, I said earlier that Adi was a magnificent interviewer. I know that may not be the best word, interviewer, but as someone who does interviews, I have nothing but respect for what I saw. He has a knack for pushing a little bit and then backing off, asking the optometry questions, and then asking about the massacres in which these guys participated in such a way that it doesn't take long to go from chit-chat to the most utterly blood-curdling level of detail. And sometimes it comes out almost compulsively. I, I mentioned before that Adi did interview the man who helped kill his brother Romley, a man named Inang. Uh, and it's a chilling interview, as they all are, but this one is just... Huh. You know, it's almost too horrific to recount on radio. The man um, suddenly tells Adi what it's like to cut off a woman's breast. He wasn't prompted to tell him that. It's so horrific that it presented a dilemma in the editing. I wanted to use as little as possible of the gruesome details. But, of course, it's the gruesome details that you see Adi reacting to, and the focus is always on his face. You know, it's important to mention that that interview begins with Enong saying how everybody in his community is afraid of him. Mm -hmm. And... I think there's a doubleness in the way Enong tells these stories. First of all, he sort of dangles them almost seductively or in, or to, in front of Adi as though to impress him. Yeah. And you start to realize that this kind of boastful storytelling is part of the mechanism of fear in the society. And uh, then, of course, I think you're right. There's also a compulsiveness to the way the perpetrators speak about what they've done in general. And I think it's because in fact, and I discovered this, Adi insisted upon it from the very beginning because he knew these men before he realized they were perpetrators. So he thought of them as human beings from the outset. He only came to understand uh, that they're perpetrators through my work with them, work that he sent me to undertake years and years ago. But still, it was only through my work that he realized who the perpetrators were in his community. And he knew many of them beforehand. But also, uh, I, something I came to understand through the work with Anwar Congo making the act of killing, namely that every perpetrator I've filmed, I think, lives their life in kind of manic flight from a pall of shame and guilt. And maybe most of the time they run, they successfully stay a few, a few paces ahead of it. But when they stop to sleep at night, that cloud of guilt catches up to them and insinuates itself into their dreams and wakes them with terrible nightmares. And they do the human thing that anyone would do if they'd done something in a group that betrays, that, that violates their individual morality. They cling to the justification of the group. And because these men have never been removed from power and still therefore have available to themselves a victor's history that justifies what they've done, what they've done they try to take these uh, rotten, bitter memories and sugarcoat them in the sweet language of this victor's history that celebrates what they've done. And that is the boasting. That is why they compulsively boast about the details of what they've done and why they always talk about the most grisly, unseemly details, 
They boast about those things because those are the bitterest memories for them to swallow. It, it still is um, surprising and shocking and completely dislocating because I think we're, you know, a lot of us have seen movies where sooner or later a murderer or a mass murderer gets interviewed. But I've never seen movies where they want to go to the ugliest, most what I would consider most appalling and disgraceful details right away. What it's like in, in the case of this guy, excuse me for saying it, but what it's like to cut a woman's breast off, what it's like to drink human blood. He says he drank human blood, as did others, uh, to keep from going crazy. And then Adi, Adi goes back to the examination, and the guy just comes out with, all of a sudden, both salty and sweet. And Adi says, excuse me? He says, human blood tastes both salty and sweet. Yeah, Adi's trying to get away from the details. Yeah. I think we've never heard this because when I first encountered this, there's another moment, there's a scene that plays in different pieces again and again throughout the look of silence where the two men involved with killing Adi's brother took me in January 2004 to the banks of the Snake River where they helped the army kill 10,500 people in one spot. And they uh, take turns playing victim and perpetrator. And as they go through this uh, horrific charade, um, they take a break where they help each other. They smell, stop to smell flowers and they help each other down a grassy verge an embankment, and, and one of them, and they, they worry that it's slippery, and they hold hands in a kind of tender, sweet, caring way. Now we're well, safe. I remember you saying, now we're safe, as yeah. they get down to the bottom of the embankment. And I remember watching that, thinking for the first time, something I've certainly said many times since, that I felt as though I'd wandered into Germany 40 years after the Holocaust, if the Nazis had remained in power, and if the rest of the world had celebrated the Holocaust while it took place. Mm-hmm. There's nothing unique about the psychology of these perpetrators. I think the reason we haven't seen this in film before is because normally when we're speaking to perpetrators, they have already been removed from power. And they're therefore either forced to deny what they've done or they're forced to act ashamed of it. And here, not only uh, are they still in power, but they know the rest of the world celebrated what they did. And one more thing, because the genocide in Indonesia, somewhat uniquely, happened outside of a context of war, the other side was silent, that the victims were silent, and there was no international attention exposing the atrocities with any moral honesty at the time of the, at the, time of the killing. So for all of those reasons, I think there's nothing unique about these men's psychology. It's simply that we're looking at a context of extreme impunity. That may be so, and maybe that's what we've missed all these years, a view of that kind of um, unpunished and unrepentant genocide. But um, the mannerisms, you know, continue to be so unsettling. They're among the things that I think stay with viewers like me the longest. The fact that they often giggle and chuckle while acting out the most grotesque, horrific murders, the fact that they like to do the acting, and they like acting with friends. So one of the two buddies leans over and pretends to be the one getting beheaded or getting his genitals cut off. Uh, Another man you interviewed in his home, it looks like, um, uh, just uh, impulsively uh, reaches over to his wife and says, this is how we killed women, and uh, pretends to lift her shirt up and and rip her stomach open. She laughs nervously. And she laughs nervously, yeah. There's a striking image at the end of this uh, sequence that we keep 
talking about, where the, at the end of the scene where the two men take me down to the river, it's at the very end of the film, where they pose for photographs, uh, snapshots of their happy day out. And uh, Amir Hassan makes a V for victory and, yes. gives, and gives a thumbs up. And I, I shot that in January 2004 and went home to London right afterwards. I cut short the shoot. I was so disturbed and in desperate need to process what I'd seen and figure out how to respond to it. The result of that processing, by the way, was my decision to make these two films. Yeah. To drop all my other pro- projects and focus on that. I returned in January 2004 and in, I guess it was April 2004, photographs of American soldiers smiling, giving the thumbs up and the V for victory while torturing prisoners in Abu Ghraib appeared in the media. And what struck me, what I could I could hardly help, I mean, I, I could, around that same time, Amir Hassan sent me the copies of the snapshots that he took by post to England and uh, the, giving the thumbs up and the V for victory. So I'm holding these pictures of death squad leaders at the places where they killed smiling and giving the thumbs up. And I'm looking at these pictures from Abu Ghraib of American soldiers smiling and giving the thumbs up while humiliating and torturing people or apparently torturing people. And I couldn't help but think that what's common to these two sets of photographs is not the crimes being committed, but the moral vacuum in which the photographs are being taken and which of which the photographs in these absurd, surreal, horrifying poses and grins are evidence. Well, you've got a couple of things going on. Of course, you've got the impunity that comes with um, official approval, official sanction, and maybe widespread societal sanction, certainly not in the case of Abu Ghraib, but in the case of the Indonesian genocide in 1965. But you've also got people who are reared just like us, who are given the same kind of moral instruction as kids and as adults by popular culture about killing being wrong, about what virtue is. And all of that's deep in our nervous systems. And so the conflict is is going to be there even if they feel they were, they were acting uh, uh, in a way that was approved of by society. I think that the, what I was saying before is that they're boasting actually paradoxically because they know they weren't. Uh huh. Right. 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 I think this is less hard to understand than it sounds at first. The paradox. I mean, one of the most peculiar aspects of how we perceive one another is that when we're confronted by somebody boasting, we feel that the person must be proud that they've done something great, and maybe if we are envious, we feel insecure in the face of their boasting. But if we think of the experience of boasting, what it's like to boast, and I'm, I'm sure you and I occasionally both boast, even if we're not proud of it, we know that we always boast out of a kind of insecurity, out of a to compensate. We're like mm. birds who puff out their feathers mm-hmm. to look bigger because we know we're small. And the reason why I focus in both my films in different ways on the boastful performance and recount of the most specific unseemly details of the killings, things that people shouldn't boast about, is because, as you pointed out, we do know that these things are wrong. All of us are kind of taught, if not hardwired, to know these things are wrong. And so by focusing on the low-ranking perpetrators, boasting about the most unseemly details of the killings, I'm honing in on 
a symptom. I'm honing in on the cracks in the facade that the genocide was heroic. Those that boasting gives the lie to the whole, the whole uh, official history and official story that this was heroic. Mm. In both the act of killing and the look of silence, we see me filming higher-ranking perpetrators. For example, the politician uh, in the look of silence. Just that's politics. It's not particularly important. Or the the newspaper publisher, commander of the death squad, yes. the act of killing. We see that we focus on the highest-ranking perpetrators. They don't have a need to talk about the details because they're not haunted by the details. Mm. They never mm-hmm. have to do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, you said uh, that these are not films, The Act of Killing and The uh, Look of Silence, are not films about the history itself. They're about what remains, the festering, the, the, the repression, what it's like to live with both killers and their victims side by side. But um, in watching the films, of course, all kinds of questions arise about the history uh, and, and are unavoidable. How, during this period of 1965, when Suharto, uh, the general, had taken over and he suddenly started this purge, of so-called communists, which could mean just about anybody who was perceived as political opposition or a threat in any way, how did he so quickly get so many low-level people to turn into real killing machines so quickly? There wasn't a war going on, as you said. This wasn't in the uh, the fever of an already, um, you know, bloody conflict. There were two different basic ways. I think there were well, on the one hand, in many regions, and certainly true of the people we see in the act of killing, he recruited gangsters and thugs who already had committed acts of violence as part of their lives as criminals. Mm-hmm. And he rewarded their further violence with wealth and power. He made people members of the parliament. He gave them promotions. He paid them. And the, in the lead-up to the 1965 killings, with American aid, in fact, uh, the army had politicized and organized uh, what had been just kind of organized criminals, into paramilitaries that would also commit political crimes. So that was one basic way, and that I think accounts for quite a bit of it. I think, though, some of the men I film you see in The Look of Silence were not necessarily thugs, to my understanding. Those who weren't, I think, were incited to participate with rhetoric that would suggest that that was dehumanizing of the victims and that falsely accused them of posing a threat that they didn't pose. But uh, always there was compensation and power offered. One of the person I'm thinking of here is the man who uh, creates an illustrated memoir of the killings that we see in the Look of Silence. Oh, yeah. A man named Amir Hassan. He had been the village art and drama teacher. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't believe he was a gangster at all. He was incited to participate because with claims that the victims were that the victims were uh, godless communists and they were planning to kill everybody who was uh, who had religion, but I don't believe that Amir Hassan really believed that. I think that gave Amir Hassan, as, as Adi says to one of the perpetrators in the film, the excuse they needed to be able to kill. Well, there is a there is a line. If there's an important line in the movie, one that sticks with me, and always will, it is Inang the accomplice of the man you were just talking about, who said, they're bad people, you can do whatever you want. Yes, and then Adi says in response, you know that's a lie, it was just an excuse so that people like you would kill. And the question then is, if it was just an excuse, if it was a matter of self-deception, it was a matter of handing people the excuse so that they could do it, what is the real reason why they wanted to participate? Yes. And again, I think it was, from everyone I filmed, it was money and power. Amir Hassan was promoted from being the uh, 
elementary school art and drama teacher to being the head of the whole Ministry of Education and Culture, above the head of the Department of Education for the whole region. <laughs> Josh, you know what a despairing uh, picture of human nature that paints for us. It wasn't even the fear of communism. It wasn't even a sense of, uh, you know, survival and self-protection. It wasn't political passion or, or deep-seated ethnic conflict. It was go greed. ahead and yeah, greed. Uh, go ahead and kill these people. Uh, we'll give you cover under the word bad or the, the magical word communism, which does seem to have a kind of supernatural power to render people alien, right? But there's something strangely hopeful in that sharing <laughs> view. Because the fact that they need that excuse at all, right, means that they know what they've done is wrong, or what they're about to do is wrong. And and a corollary to that, something I've certainly found through this work, is that uh, the human capacity for evil depends upon this unique ability, which we human beings have, to lie to ourselves. Other animals might lie to each other. I mean, we see birds feign a broken wing, whether Mm -hmm. they're conscious of it or not. But we actually are able to lie to ourselves. And the fact that there's a part of us that needs to be lied to is much more hopeful than saying that all of the perpetrators are somehow monsters uh, or psychopaths. Or Because then what can we do? We can identify them and we can somehow neutralize them. We can make render them safe to the rest of us. Primo Levi, speaking about his own experience uh, in the Holocaust, said very importantly, there may be monsters among us, but they're too few to worry about. What we have to worry about are the ordinary people. And I think that here, we, if we can get over our resistance to, to seeing the perpetrators as knowing what they've done is wrong, and I think that resistance stems from the fear that, well, what about us then? We know it's wrong too. Could we ever in such in a context be incited to do something so awful if we grew up in a different family, if we grew up in a different society? And we, we would hope that we couldn't, but we know most of us are lucky never to have to find out. And here I think we're in this, we reach this place of, if you can get over that discomfort of realizing that, we, I think we come to see that this is in fact not despairing, but the only hopeful way of thinking about these things. Because it suggests that if every human being knows what they're being incited to do is wrong, we should be able to do two things as, as societies that would allow us to make these kind of unthinkable violence ultimately unimaginable. First of all, we should be able to foster the widest possible empathy, where we empathize, we teach people we pra- to practice empathy with everybody, rather than teaching people, as I think we do now, to divide everything in terms of uh, every aspect of our lives into us and them. Well, yeah, and, and you know, I think that's why I, I think that that uh, that line from Enong is so important. They're bad people. You can do whatever you want. The measure of uh, you know societal progress, I think, would be what do you do to bad people? Uh, once you've labeled them bad, does that give you license to do the worst possible things? And in many ways. That line does apply to us, too. When we have fully labeled someone as bad, thrown them in prison, we seem to be able to uh, countenance any degree of deprivation and cruelty because they are bad and we're good. Even once we call them bad, we sort of long for cruelty. It's like this Ah, story where uh, they they were reinstituting useless chain gangs in the South because it was popular with voters who would see the criminals on chain gangs on the side of the road crushing rocks to no end. I think that 
Actually, the mark, the measure of progress, though, is not what do we do to people we label as bad, but to what extent can we build, uh, have the empathy necessary to not see people as bad, to mm. try and understand what makes people do those things that are bad, but not to see the human being herself or himself as bad. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Watching the guys in your film, for instance, I strongly feel that they are really, really bad. They are oh, really Adi, bad. I wasn't there. I wasn't there either. When <laughs> I Adi was there, strangely, from the beginning, and he brought me there. I mean, this moment at the beginning of the film, you talk about, you talked about it, where, where one of the men is sort of jokingly showing how he killed women on his own wife. And she's uncomfortable, and I'm certainly watching this footage, and I know every viewer is thinking, this man is a monster. And Adi says, he must be, Adi's response to that same footage is, this man must feel really terrible about what he's done, or else he wouldn't need to be so numb. Yes, yes. So I got this view, I learned this from Adi. That's really interesting because, you know, you expressed that view to me the last time we did an interview about the act of killing uh, in 2013. Um, you expressed that to me, and I didn't realize at the time, but when I saw the movie and saw Adi say that to you, I thought, ah, maybe Adi influenced Josh. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely influenced me in, very, in so many ways. Also, the notion that, that you have to be able to separate the human being from the crime. I have some friends in my hometown, uh, two of them who are judges, and they watched the film, and they said, you know, we as judges, they're progressive judges, we as judges are trying to do this all the time to see that we're judging a human being. And our job is not to just condemn and be, and then allow that to be an excuse ultimately for all measure of cruelty. Our right. job is to think, to really ask the difficult question of what is justice when recognizing it's always being applied to human beings. If, if one can accept my claim that the reason the perpetrators boast is in fact because they know it's wrong and it's a, a, way, a way of coping with it, a way of uh, living with what they've done, uh, by, by not by running away from from guilt and shame, by cloaking these awful memories in this victor's history, if you can accept that the boasting is actually motivated by guilt, you start to recognize that you can't even divide the human soul into good parts and bad parts. If this ultimately evil behavior of boasting about uh, about atrocity is motivated by by a moral awareness that what you've done is wrong, motivated by humanity then you start to recognize that there's no angel and devil perched on your shoulder. The, the, the angel can be part of the devil, and probably vice versa, although I haven't explored that yet. <laughs> uh, we spoke about poetry at the beginning. This film is extremely poetic, lyrical. It alternates between these conversations and these, these extremely loaded images Images like, you know, the person with the foropter on his face, or these, are they jumping beans? They're a kind of Indonesian, uh, kind of Indonesian jumping bean, yeah. And uh, I, think one, I think one place we see them, we see them very early in the film. I think we see them again after, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Josh, I'm going from memory here. I think we see them again after we've seen this interview with Inang ending with a shot of his face just convulsed in in these facial tics, which may or may not be the result of his guilty conscience. But I think at that point we see these little jumping beans again, which contain, I guess, butterfly or moth larvae that are moving around in there. And there's this sense of the beans, you know, there's something pushing to get out, something hidden, something uh, suppressed perhaps. And the last line in the film is, 
uh, Adi's mother looking at those beans in her hand and they're jumping and she says, I want to see you come out. Are you even there? Yes, yes. And uh, so uh, the poetic aspect, did these images, first of all, did these sort of fall in your lap? Did, were these just things you were filming incidentally? And then when you got into the editing room, you said, oh, my God, there's the the perfect uh, you know visual expression of, of a theme here? You know, I was just talking about that yesterday uh, with the theater director, Peter Sellers, and he said to me, the Quran describes the world as full of signs. He says, you just need to learn how to read them. Uh-huh. That's true of nonfiction filmmaking. All around us, all the time, are sort of metaphors that allow us to see the most important issues in our lives. And when I'm making a film, you know, I'm looking for these things. So Adi is an optometrist, but if I had just that had just been background, or you know, to a much more his sort of back backstory in a much more journalistic film, it would never emerge as a metaphor. Someone might mention it in a review, but it wouldn't become the metaphor for blindness that it becomes here. Similarly, uh, a more conventional filmmaker might see Adi's children playing with these jumping beans and just ignore them. Mm-hmm. So that, that's strange, but it has nothing to do with what I'm filming. Or There's another moment I remember when uh, one of the most powerful perpetrators in the film, I remembered from years earlier when I filmed him, he, he loved to sing, and he had this absurd sort of uh, baritone or bass voice, and I and I saw when we were setting up for one of the most dangerous confrontations we would film. I saw he had this keyboard leaning against the wall, and I wondered if he would like to, if he still sings. And I asked, and I spent quite a bit of time filming him singing for us before we began the confrontation. I remember my cinematographer said, "Come on, this conf- this is a dangerous scene. Let's get on with it. Why are we wasting precious time for this?" And I. It wasn't just that him singing would make the scene less dangerous, which I figured was true, but also that it would prove vitally important. Uh, and so I think that I'm looking always while I'm shooting for little, for details around me, whether it's that giant fish, in, which in the director's cut is actually the final shot of the film, or these little beans, or the fact, the fact that Adi's an optometrist, or this is one shot of. Adi in his parents' home at night where you see light streaming through the kind of gaps between the boards, the, the, the boards that make them form the walls of the house. You get this feeling of this intense energy that's sort of streaming out from what otherwise would look like a shack and finding ways of filming that where, where, where that sort of floods over the viewer and makes you feel that there's this intense power in the silence, that the silence is not just peaceful, it's the, si- it's the silence of night, or the stillness of nitroglycerin. That eye for metaphor as I'm working is, is what draws me to the nonfiction film. I feel like I'm, I'm make, creating a metaphor in a nonfiction film is like finding a, a sapling and, 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 and tend, caring for it, making, protecting it from too much light or too much wind or too much heat and giving it just the right amount of water and allowing it to grow. Are you influenced by poetry, or, or is it other filmmakers who, who've done similar things? Um, I don't read as much poetry as perhaps I would wish I, I read. I, I, I certainly um, look for films that transport me to an emotional, an emotional state of heightened perception rather than films that just tell me a good story, uh, whether fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. 
You mentioned song and, you know, the sound environment uh, that you put so much care into in this film includes those layered cricket sounds we talked about earlier. Of course, it includes the dialogue. It does not include background music, uh, thankfully, soundtrack of any kind, which personally I feel is, is too manipulative. But it does include song, at least three songs, maybe more. Um, there is the official you talked about, you know, one of the guys who had his hand in the massacres singing this kind of heartbroken love song, I think. And uh, there's another um, of the killers in a different interview also singing a love song. And then there's Adi's father, who's lost his sight, can barely hear, is in the late stages of dementia, but still remembers kind of a youthful body song uh, and can sing it. You're so sexy, he says. What do, what do these songs mean to you? It's a great question. Um, at least with the two perpetrators who are singing, there is a mysterious, fascinating, and ultimately somehow humanizing, but that's secondary here, actually, desire. Uh, they're, they're, they're moments of performance and sort of self-conscious performance that make you wonder, who is this man? Why is he performing? In both cases, it's how I introduce the, the character. Uh, it's both, both perpetrators, we really hear them for the first time, when we encounter them for the first time through this song through these songs. It, 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 it raises the question, for whom are you performing? How do you want to be seen? And then there's these wonderful, uh, in both cases, there's these wonderful serendipitous resonances with the film's themes. The first one, the film opens, the first thing we hear in the film is, is, is the song of one of the perpetrators, and he says, why, why should I remember if it only breaks my heart? Mm-hmm. Sort of, I love that it's the opposite of what the film mm-hmm. says. And then later, the second time we hear a perpetrator sing, of course, his song, I didn't understand the lyrics to the song because it's not in Indonesian, it's in the regional language, Batak, and when we had it, we chose to use the song before we knew what it meant. And it's this love song, and it's the way it's cut. We know that Adi already knows who he is and what he's done, and he sits there sort of serenading Adi with, in this awful voice with his keyboard, and but very openly and sort of sweetly, and when we have the song translated, we learn that he's saying, like, uh, despite the huge rift that divides us, my love, please, you know, stay with me. Which right. is also ironic, given that Body's aware of the rift, but, but he is not at that point, because he, because he doesn't yet know who Adi is, or why I'm back with Adi. And then, you know, Adi's father sings this song, he's 103 years old, at, at least, according to his ID card. And he sings this song, uh, which is a youthful song. He claims to be 17 because he's <laughs> suffering from dementia. And the song is a song a 17-year-old might sing. It's like, you're so sexy, I can't stand it, or the lyrics. And that's about memory somehow and, and the different layers of time that make us who we are. And I think that is this sense that we live in memory and through different different states of time. You know, memories don't come to us like stories. Memories come to us like images, take uh, snapshots, and mm-hmm. then we, we arrange them as, into stories. And I think that if you could put the human being through a prism, you would get this almost infinite number of snapshots superimposed upon one another that make us what we are in any moment. That's actually what I'm trying to do in the, in the, with the camera in, in the director's cut of the act of killing, I'm trying to use it as a kind of prism that makes visible some of those snapshots. But here, 
we're, if our past lives on in us, it suggests that trauma to that past also lives on in a, in a painful way. And there's one other song in the film, which uh, I don't, you can only really hear if you watch the film with headphones or in a quiet space or in a good cinema. Uh, there's a, two places in the film where you hear this distant song playing, a kind of romantic, schmaltzy even, uh, old Indonesian song, club song. And it first haunts this kind of empty village square right after we've looked for the first time at the water in the river where 10,500 people were killed. And then it comes back over the credits, right, when we see, and it's time to come in right when we see the screen fill with Anonymous. And it, it, if you are in the screen, if you watch the film in a good sound environment, it's a moment where you realize that there's this sweet and peaceful veneer Yes. Under which is all this, yes. under which lies all this fear. Yeah, yeah. I took some of those songs, certainly the sentimental ones, as part of the many uh, bitter ironies that run through the film, whether it's the gentility and graciousness of these murderers in their treatment of you, at least outwardly, of Adi initially, until they get upset. Moments of uh, of kindness toward each other, like the two old men holding hands as they climb down the river bank to where they used to butcher people. Uh, and then saying, now we're safe when they get down to the flats, you know, along the river. Um, you had similar, uh, you know, contrasts in uh, the act of killing Anwar Congo, instructing his grandchildren to be nice to some ducklings, right? Um, but you and of course, the, the Born Free musical number. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The pinnacle of that in my work, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, the effect, I mean, one of the effects on a person like me is just to make it even more gut-wrenching in a way you know, to make the whole thing feel more queasy, you know? <laughs> I, I haven't thought about this. Um, Milan Kundera talked about two tears involved with sadness. He talks about how you shed the first tear because something singularly upsetting, singularly sad, say if a child hurts himself or is hurt in a film or in, in, in a book, and then you shed the second tear because you know that the whole world is crying with you. Uh-huh. That's a sad thing. And that's the beginning, he says, of kitsch or sentimentality. Yes. And that's the beginning. That's also escapist. It's also a moment whereby taking refuge in the fellowship of all the other human beings who are crying at the same time, you withdraw from the singular sadness and the demands it makes upon your empathy. Mm. And I try to bring the viewer in both films through this, and in my, I think I'll in my work going forward through this through these kind of moments we're talking about here to what I've started to talk about is a third tier where the viewer is brought to a place where they can appreciate the tragic consequences of the escapism of that second tier the tragic where we can cry for the tragedy of sentimentality and and the escapism that it implies ah. Well, that's. I think that is what I'm experiencing. And then I am experiencing something else I wanted to ask you about, which is just the, the pleasure of watching uh, a piece of artifice that is so well-crafted. The films are beautiful, you know? They're beautifully put together. They're lovingly put together. There's the pacing. There's the infinite care you put into the choice of shots, uh, uh, you know, picking from just God knows how many hours of footage that you captured over those many years of filming. Um mm. And uh, the use of metaphor and poetic elements. So I'm taking pleasure 
while watching, uh, you know, subject matter that should be deeply upsetting. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's part of why the films are upsetting. I think that, first of all, in, in The Look of Silence, I think we have this feeling that uh, that the delicacy, the beauty of Adi and his Adi and his children and his parents and the dignity and the grace with which they live their lives and the love with which they live their lives despite the terrible condition of living in fear for half a century uh, is makes the violence and the descriptions of violence from the perpetrators all the more wrenching because we see what's being destroyed. We feel what's being destroyed. And uh, I also think that I've tried to film the landscapes with an enchantedness, feeling that mm-hmm. that I'm trying to make, not because they're beautiful. I think the shots are not picturesque. They're not tropic. Not, although some people have sort of written this, I think it's imprecise to say they're, it's a kind of tropical paradise. The landscapes here and in the director's cut of the act of killing are kind of haunted, haunted spaces where we feel the presence of ghosts and the un, and the unmourned dead. And that that enchantment, that filming and editing and working with the sound and the color to re-haunt a landscape is about acknowledging the dead. And filming the family with such intimacy is about looking at them with enough precision that we can see the tiny traces of that hidden potential for change and also the tiny trace of the near near invisible traces of these invisible but horrible forces of fear and silence. Mm. And so I think that the visual care with which I make the look of silence is what allows the film, I hope, to be precisely focused on this silence born of fear and its effects on human lives. And in the act of killing, too, one of my most important rules was that I should shoot the dramatizations, the kind of fever dreams of Anwar with as much poetic force as possible so that the viewer would be transported by those scenes emotionally in the same way Anwar is, so that you as a viewer, this particularly happens in the uncut act of killing, are lost with Anwar in his own nightmare and fever dream only to sort of it out into the bitter reality at the very end. And these things depend upon that visual care. I think that the visual care, it's not this sort of paradox that the films are, that, that, it, that the films are, are well-crafted. I, I'm not sure they are, and I'm honored you say they are, but it's not that it's, it, I think that that's why they're effective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that Adi undertook this, these confrontations with, uh, these mass murderers, including uh, one who killed his own brother, um, with the idea that ultimately they might lead to some kind of reconciliation, an opportunity for forgiveness and maybe apology. In some cases, they don't end that way. Uh, some end in threats. The official you mentioned earlier who is playing his little keyboard at the beginning of the of the scene um, ends by saying, uh, this could all happen again. You better stop asking these questions. But at least one other ends with, um, oh, I don't know whether it's reconciliation of a real kind, but it is, you know, again, one of many, many absolutely dizzying moments in this film. Adi has been interviewing a man, a former uh, killer, along with his daughter. And the man who's now elderly describes again these horrific things, including drinking blood, 
carrying a, a woman's head into a Chinese shop. The, the ethnic Chinese in Indonesia were among the many victims of these massacres just to scare people. I mean, just awful stuff. And you can see his initially proud daughter starting to flinch. And then when Adi says, you know, my brother was among those killed. And when he personalizes it that way, there's often a change in these interviews when it becomes not so much about some mass of victims, but about a particular victim. And at that point, really, you can see that she's really having trouble and says, uh, please forgive my father, and then embraces him and says, we're like family now. Think of him as your father. Do you think that was like a, a breakthrough, or was that? Well, yeah, it was. It was a breakthrough. And Adi and uh, she remain in touch and close with each other, actually. Ever, wow. Ever since then. I think, uh, first of all, as you were describing uh, the, the terrible things people say in the film, it occurred to me finally this very simple thing, which is that uh, we're always, what makes the, these descriptions bearable is that what we're watching is not, we're not being asked to imagine in our kind of mind's eye what's being said. We're, we're being asked to watch closely at everybody's reaction to these stories in the present. Yeah. And in this case, we see the daughter of a, of a man who's killed many, many people realize that her father is not the man she thought he was. We see her face collapse as she realizes that she'll have to spend the rest of his life, because he's old and somewhat infirm, uh, looking after a man who in a terrible way has now become a kind of stranger to her. And there's a little moment of defensiveness when Adi first reveals he's uh, a brother of a victim, where she says, well, I didn't know, and he didn't know you, and I, you know. But then we see her become quiet. That fades. It doesn't give her the solace that it might someone else. And she drops the defensiveness and she becomes very still for a moment. And she does this extraordinary thing, which is to listen to her own conscience and to apologize on her father's behalf. And Adi is forced to take responsibility for his plan of actually forgiving if people can apologize. And he says this thing which uh, he sort of now has to say, which is, well, not your fault what your father's done. And what, whoever he is, he's still your father. I, I can understand that you need... He's essentially saying, I can understand that you need to find a way of living with him despite yeah. And she is grateful for that. And you can see she doesn't want Adi to leave, and she almost looks over with an un, unsuppressed grimace at her father as, he gets, as Adi gets up to go and, and reaches across this abyss of, of fear and guilt that's dividing everybody, and and says, "Think of me like family." Like that's that's, and that is a. It's one of the most beautiful, uh, uh, delicate things I've ever seen. I do not put it at the end of a film as the final confrontation because if I did, it would become dishonest and sentimental. Understood. And I want to talk about the final confrontation. That's probably the last thing I want to talk to you about. Um, this is a scene where Adi is uh, visiting the family of Amir Hassan, one of the two guys we've seen at the riverbank demonstrating, along with this other man, Inang, how they killed Romley, Adi's brother. And then we see another clip of Amir Hassan, former art teacher, as you say, talking about a book that he put together, sort of commemorating his wonderful exploits and even including hand-drawn illustrations of him killing people, including Romley. Now, later he has died, and you and Adi go and visit the surviving family members, his widow and his two sons. And Adi 
you know, confronts them with what this man did and the book is mentioned and, and the widow initially says, oh, I don't know anything about that. Now, at some point, they're getting agitated and you produce, I think it's an iPad with some footage showing her and her now dead husband with the book. Is that right? And talking about the killing of Romney they even mentioned there. Yeah, yeah. And so by now the sons are really agitated. One of them basically rips the microphone off his mother and says this interview's over. And then you say, but I have another clip. I have another clip. So this is where we're starting to hear your voice. Uh, why did you include that? And what does that say about your methods, Josh? Who, who are you in all of this? Well, there's first a little story about how we shot what happened. In yeah, yeah. I'd spent three months with Amir Hassan when he was still alive, his wife and those two sons, so uh, Erwin and Zulfan, essentially starting to dramatize Amir Hassan's book in a kind of dry run for what we would do in the act of killing a year and a half later. And it never occurred to me when we went back to meet Amir Hassan's family, knowing that he died, that now his now widow and two sons would deny knowing what their father husband had done because I would know that they're lying. I'd worked with them to dramatize it for months. Uh, the idea was that Adi would go and say, look, you know who I am. You know I'm Ramli's brother. I know who you are. And it's not your fault what Amir Hassan has done. And we have to find a way of living together. What if one day my daughter would want to marry one of your sons or your grandson? It would be terrible if we couldn't come together for them as a family and live together. How shall we live together? And because they were, I think, shocked that I returned with uh, Romley's brother, the brother of the most well-known victim in the region, they did panic, they lied, and I'm pushing them to get past the lie by confronting them with this footage, not to humiliate them or, or anger them, but actually just so that we could get beyond the denial so we could have this conversation for which we had come. At the end of shooting that scene, I... I felt really despairing. I felt we'd failed miserably, and I'd upset the mother, whom I liked, upset the brothers, and we'd gone there to build bridges, not to burn them, and we'd failed. And only when I looked at the footage did I see that somehow we have made visible in this scene more than in any other, more profoundly than in any other, the abyss that is dividing everybody, that, that this unbridgeable divide of fear that's cutting across the society. Now, when I was, we were editing the scene, I remember my editor suggested, what if we take my intervention out or tone it down? Yeah. And I said no, because it felt somehow dishonest to do so. I could have easily hid, hid that from the audience. I, I think I put it in because the scene's about everything we've just described, this abyss, but it makes it also about something bigger, about the broader effort that, in a way, both of these films are, to use cinema to address and confront a past, which is still present, because although everyone in the film says, let the past be past, the very fact that they keep saying it belies the statement that the survivors are always saying it out of fear and the perpetrators are always saying it as a threat, meaning that the past is right there in the present, keeping the survivors afraid and being wielded as a threat or as a weapon, potential weapon, by the perpetrators. And so the past isn't past, and here's this film project that's seeking to draw attention to the 
horrific effects of impunity in the present. And there are limits to that project. And maybe, maybe, I've never really thought this before, but maybe showing the miserable failure of my attempt to uh, get them to look at this footage, the fact that it leads everything to explode, something that happened very, very rarely in the, over the course of the, these years, making this film, these two films. Um, by showing the failure of that intervention, I'm also pointing out what needs to happen, which is a national and political process where the past is acknowledged and where there's truth, reconciliation, and justice. I'm showing that, look, you can't have, uh, that the truth and reconciliation is a social process and that you can't have, that, that it's not going to be achieved through one film or through one filmmaker or through an individual effort. There's a collective effort that needs to follow if the society's going to get beyond the impasse beyond the kind of brick wall that we hit in every single one of those confrontations, apart from uh, the one where the daughter actually does the necessary work of reaching out across that divide yeah. and, 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 and apologizing. Um, Josh, it, it incidentally does show something else, and it's something that I guess should be obvious to anybody who's watched these films and thought about what it took to make them, but it, it shows how determined you are. I mean, the doggedness with which you pursued this and pushed into some unbelievably awkward and delicate and scary situations. And, you know, even though that, that whole scene had fallen apart and the people were really, really out of sorts, you were saying, wait, look at one more clip, look at one more clip. I just want to know where you think in you that determination came from. I think that what motivates me in my work is a profound or a basic, because I don't mean to elevate it, but a basic intolerance for hypocrisy. It is, again, that third tier, that the lie itself is the tragedy. People say, you know, you've pulled back the curtain and re- revealed the horror. The curtain itself is the horror, and I hope that's the real message of the films. And when we were editing The Look of Silence, we had like a, a set, it was like a rough cut of the first half of the film. We kind of assembled the first half of the film, and the first assembly of this film because I was working with the same editor who made The Act of Killing with me, and we, we really knew each other very well. The first assembly was already like a, a good rough cut. We had the first half of the film, and I watched it. And not that it was good yet. It certainly wasn't complete, but I was weeping after watching it. I mean, it really, it was a very important moment for me. It was like a cathartic moment for me, because I recognized, I saw that this film would express the sadness and the outrage that motivated me to dedicate really my youth to this. And there I was with this family and they were lying and Adi deserved to have that confrontation. And it felt so unfair. It it felt so unfair. And I just, that, and he looked so disappointed. You see the end of that, mm. he was so disappointed. Mm. Making the look of silence it was maybe physically frightening in a way that the act of killing was not, in fact. But it was emotionally healing, and it was emotionally healing because through it, I was working with people whom I have loved for a very long time to express this suffering, this uh, injustice in the present that is always overlooked. And that they were going to not meet Adi's gaze and just lie. When we were there and Adi was, could come to them with such humanity, I, 
made me unwilling to accept that in that moment. It, this motivated me to just persist. Hmm. Well, Josh, it, it has been great talking to you again. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you. It was one of the nicest uh, interviews I've, I've had the pleasure of doing. So thank you so much to you. And uh, my thanks again to Joshua Oppenheimer for making so much time in the midst of uh, endless interviews and media scrums. The Look of Silence is making its way uh, to theaters around the country right now, hopefully one near you. And uh, you can always see his previous film, The Act of Killing, if you haven't seen it already, on Netflix. The director's cut is there. Well, I uh, continue always to mull over questions raised and maybe questions I should have asked in the interviews I do. And this one was no exception. And one of the things that um, I thought about a lot afterwards was my own reaction to the braggadocio of the killers in both The Act of Killing and uh, The Look of Silence and why I find that so startling. Uh, you know, am I not reacting to the actual immorality, but just to their self-presentation, to their lack of image awareness, you know? We're conditioned to seeing people be more guarded uh, and uh, brand conscious when they're in front of the camera. So why were these guys so unabashedly talking about stuff that we find horrifying? Well, it's because, of course, that their awareness of their audience is different. They're speaking to a different audience. They're not speaking to us. And that, that's not just a question of media awareness. That is also a question of morality itself, because... That's a huge component of morality is the idea of, you know, the collective that's going to sit in judgment of you. And, of course, that changes at different points in time and uh, different places. These guys have been living in the world that Suharto helped create, what he called the New Order, in which they were virtuous. They were model citizens. But now the whole uh, landscape has shifted, and it is catching some of the old guard by surprise uh, in the act of killing, we got to see Anwar Congo doing the watching, sitting in a camera crane, uh, looking through the viewfinder as he directed his own movie scenes. But now in the um, look of silence, it is Adi who we see over and over again viewing the footage of the killers as they tell their tales. We're looking through his eyes now, and uh, it is almost as though this fundamental change in perspective is uh, restoring a new kind of moral order in Indonesia. And it's not just uh, Indonesia where perspectives have changed. It's here, too. And Josh shows that in uh, a really chilling clip that he includes in the movie. We didn't have time to talk about it, but um, it is a segment from an NBC News documentary from 1967 broadcast on American television called Indonesia, A Troubled Victory. largely unnoticed victory over the communists has been decisively won in Southeast Asia. In fact, it is the single biggest defeat ever handed to communists anywhere in the world. Sixteen months ago, these beautiful and tranquil-looking islands exploded with stunning violence. In many cases, entire families were liquidated, and the purge continues to this day. Bali is such a beautiful island. The people are so attractive, climate so lovely. It's hard to believe that so many unpleasant things went on here in the last year. Yeah, but now Bali become more beautiful without communists. What actually happened here in this village 
some of the communist leaders from this village realize that they're wrong already, and they come to the village council and ask when the village council will clean their village from the communist people. You mean the communists themselves ask to be killed? Some of them. And some of them want to be killed, and now give me a chance to say goodbye to all of my relatives, and the next morning I'm ready to be killed. Indonesia has a fabulous potential wealth in natural resources. Goodyear's Sumatran rubber empire is an example. The rubber workers union was communist run, so after the coup, many of them were killed or imprisoned. Some of the survivors, you see them here, still work the rubber, but this time as prisoners and at gunpoint. The different islands deal with the communist survivors in various ways. In some camps, they are starved to death or released periodically to be killed by the local citizens. Ted Yates, NBC News, reporting. So you heard the reporter there, Ted Yates, talking to, I guess, a guy who is a Balinese official, telling him that the communists realize the error of their ways and many turn themselves in, some wanting to be killed. Uh, very similar to the fantasies of uh, Anwar Congo in The Act of Killing with his victims thanking him in the afterlife. So I was wondering, uh, not having seen the whole report, but just the clip that Josh included in the movie, whether uh, the American audience was meant to be appalled at what they saw, that this was a kind of expose, even though the reporter didn't show any reaction, didn't uh, seem to be advancing any kind of uh, criticism at all. Maybe he was just being poker-faced and quote-unquote objective but he fully expected us to be horrified. But uh, Josh, who I I contacted after our interview, uh, tells me that, no, having seen the whole report, uh, it's pretty clear to him that it was celebrating this victory over communism while maybe shaking its head just a little bit and admitting you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. So what does that say about the American audience at that time, at least as NBC News saw it in the midst of the Cold War, in the midst of the Vietnam War. Um, And Josh, by the way, makes it clear in the film in a couple places that he does not see this as a strictly Indonesian atrocity, a third world problem, or maybe the failings of a people not sufficiently civilized, unlike us. There are a couple points in the movie, uh, aside from this clip, where people talk about the fact that Americans approved of what was going on in Indonesia and uh, even taught the Indonesians to hate communists. And historians have uh, shown how American officials were aware of and uh, tacitly did give their approval, um, maybe even lending some forms of assistance. Uh, One other thing I uh, got back in touch with Josh to clarify, because it's something that occurred to me and may have occurred to you uh, when listening to the interview or when watching the film, it's when uh, Adi confronts Inang, uh, one of the two men who actually killed Adi's brother, Romley, but Adi never brings it up. He does bring up Romley with other people, other killers he confronts, but not with the guy who actually had a hand in it, and uh, that really stood out for me. Um, Josh tells me that the reason was Inang was the very first of these guys that Adi um, met with, and at that time, they really didn't feel secure about bringing up Romley. They hadn't yet worked out some of the safety precautions that they later came up with Uh, when doing these interviews, things like having an extra getaway car, um, being ready to flee and uh, 
and uh, take evasive action if things got really ugly. Fortunately, they never had to take those steps. Well, that is it for uh, this edition of the 7th Avenue Project, and you can always visit us online at 7thAvenueProject.com, which is where you'll find my previous interview from 2013 with Joshua talking about the act of killing. So long until next week.